702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Live, online. The 702 app, DSTV Channel 856, 92.7 and 106 FM. Coming up on the show today, Nandipa Magudamana collapses allegedly in the holding cells. The lawyer says she is being treated inhumanely. The latest on the Senzo Miyua trial. The Gauteng Judge President speaks out about the dangers of the Joburg High Court building, Saptu and BDS to pickets outside the U.S. Embassy in Santon, and the World Anti-Doping Agency receives South Africa's notice to appeal its decision. All of that over the next hour. 7.02. Let's walk the talk. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Madeira Report on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Mandy Wiener. Great to be with you today. We're going to start with that lead story today in Bloemfontein, where the convicted killer and rapist Tabo Besta appearing in court in the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court. Uh, Dr. Nandipa Magudamana, his uh, his lover, erstwhile lover, current lover, uh, not quite sure, um, she was supposed to appear in court today, but it seems, according to her lawyer, uh, that there has been quite a dramatic development, that she has uh, apparently collapsed in the holding cells uh, and that paramedics are currently treating her. So that's the one big development. Uh, the other big development is that Tabo Besta has appeared in court and he has uh, really boosted his legal team uh, with uh, advocate uh, Mshalola from the Senzo Miwa trial. And also, it seems, advocate Dalian Porfu getting involved in this matter as well. Let's go straight to Khomotso Mudise, EWN reporter who's in court for us. Khomotso, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, talk us through what happened with Nandipa Magudamana today and, and what we actually know about her health currently. Andy, well, we learned earlier this morning from the lawyers that she was unwell and she's been unwell um, from yesterday and uh, According to Machina Mutoum, who's representing her, uh, he went to the prison where uh, he learned about her not being well. And so he said he was very surprised when he saw her this morning uh, or heard that she was being this morning um, to this particular court. He understood that she wouldn't appear because she wasn't feeling too well. Uh, we then learned from him also that he's just been down to the holding cells where he, she's lying on the floor because she's so unwell. And so um, that's really what's happening in terms of her health. She didn't appear with her COVID. We were expecting to see her in the dock together with her and her father, Zorila Sekeleni, but she wasn't there. And we've just learned now um, from the prosecutor, Amanda Buster, who's told the court that um, the court essentially, um, or the magistrate may have to go down to cells, Mandy, um, to postpone or transfer matter to the high court and I don't know if that has ever happened before, where a officer, a magistrate would go into the cells for a matter to be postponed officially and transferred to the, uh, to the high court. I certainly haven't witnessed it myself in, in, in my career, so I'm not sure. Uh, maybe some lawyers can give us some, some insight there. Um, Hamoto, we also understand that charges have been withdrawn against three of the accused. What do we know about that? That's right, Mandy. So at least three are accused. I think they're including Natasha Janssen as well as Moiketi Mir or Tabang Mir. Um, they, um, the charges were withdrawn against three of them are G4S employees. And they actually just walked out of the courtroom now, tried to speak to them. But they're not speaking to the media, but they're very visibly relieved. And um, uh, one of them even said, I'm going to sleep at night tonight. 
Um, it's unclear, though, on what basis these charges have been withdrawn. We will learn and establish from um, the uh, the representative. In fact, one of the lawyers is here, and I don't know if I should just take it to him really quickly. Uh, so uh, you can um, hear from him. Uh, so we're just struggling with your line a little bit. So um, I think we're going we're gonna to rather play the audio that you've sent us of, of one of the lawyers. I think that's probably a, a better way to, to go forward. But thank you so much for, for your report, Gemotso uh, Mudise, EWN reporter, who's in court for us. Apologies for that, that line. I think we could get the, the essence of what Gemotso was saying there. She did send us some audio earlier of Nandipa Magudamana's attorney explaining exactly what the situation was. Have a listen. She's not well. And um, she was declared as such yesterday. I actually got a call and I went to prison about it. And um, I, I did converse uh, the issues and I, I left prison knowing that she's not well. So that's the lawyer explaining what the situation is with Dr. Nandipa Magudamana. We understand paramedics are treating her. And as Gamozo said there, the magistrate may actually have to go down to the holding cells to postpone the matter. I don't know if that's something that would would uh, ever happen, uh, but that's what it seems at this stage. Um, and then uh, there were also concerns about the fact that she had been treated inhumanely. So there was a suggestion that she was not appropriately dressed and she had covered herself in a, in a blanket and that um, the police were still trying to make her appear in court and that was the concern. Uh, the other development says Khomotso told us is that the uh, charges have now been withdrawn against three of the co-accused and then also new lawyers that, that have come in to, to help Tabo Besta it seems Advocate Mshalolo, who you'll know from the Senzo Miwa trial uh, who has, has really gained um, national status representing some of the accused in that matter accused number five I think it is in the Senzo Miwa trial. Uh, she is now going to be assisting with Tabo Besta's defense and Tabo Besta stood up and told the court that Advocate Dalian Porfo will also be assisting uh, in, in his defence. Uh, on Twitter, Piwines says, Mans, please contact Dr. Dr. Matthew to come and assist Dr. Nandipa. Please. And you guys, you're so shady. 7.02, the Midday Report. Monday to Friday. 12 to 1 p.m. Well, let's go to the Senzo Miyua trial and see what's happening there today. The Sabanya Gold HR manager, Hendrik Louis Mulder, back on the witness stand today. Remember yesterday we had the evidence from the forensic experts about uh, whether or not there was a, a conclusive link between the hat that was found on the scene and the accused. Uh, and then uh, in the afternoon, uh, Mulder then testified as well. So let's check in with Nokukanyam Tambo, EWN reporter, about what's happening there. Nokukanya, good afternoon to you. Uh, so we just had this breaking news. I, I'm, I hope I'm not catching you off guard um, about the fact that Advocate Mshalolo is now involved in the Tabu Besta matter as well. But she's still involved in, in the Senzo case, right? Good afternoon, Mandy. She, she certainly is. She is in court, was in court uh, this morning as well, and will continue to uh, represent accused number five in the matter. As far as I understand, that matter hasn't even come up in court here, um, you know, in terms of her having to ask for, for, for extra time uh, or postponement to deal with other matters. So this court is none the wiser about her representation in the uh, Tabo Besta matter. Okay, so um, her, her schedule, no doubt, will be very, very busy. Two of the highest profile uh, cases in the country at the moment. Uh, mm. So at the moment, Hendrik Louis Mulder on the stand. What evidence is being led there? So it really was a quick in and out from Hendrik Mulder. Uh, Matty, he was in court for all but 
three minutes, if I'm not mistaken, earlier this morning. He was set to return to allow for some of the other defense lawyers to allow uh, them to the chance at cross-examining him. They had initially uh, indicated yesterday that they really had no questions for him, that being the defense lawyers for three, four and five. Only accused number two was, uh, you know, he testified in relation to accused number two, Bongani Dandi, and his employee record. So the defense lawyers for three, four and five really had no interest in that. Uh, But they weren't given the opportunity to tell the court yesterday that they had no plans of cross-examining Mr. Mulder. So he was brought back to court to give the defense lawyers a chance to then ask. But, uh, you know, as as quickly as he came in, uh, the defense lawyers, uh, the three defense lawyers then told the court they had no cross-examination and he stood down. Uh, We've had no witnesses for the duration of the morning, Mandy, but we dealt with a number of very key uh, matters here. The first of those was being, again, the whereabouts of Bungani Danzi, continuing from uh, the tone of yesterday. And the state uh, really wanted here to place on records the bank records of Bungani Danzi, because if you recall, Mandy, he previously told the court that he was in case in, um, he was in case in to pay Lobola for his wife, and his bank records uh, would show transactions to that effect, that he was in Guanongom. And so the state has then uh, brought these bank records to, to, to the court, uh, showing that there were, in fact, no records of Ndanzi ever transacting from this particular account that he told the court uh, would show that he was in KZN and not in Gauteng where the murder happened. So the state um, submitted those records. No loan uh, transaction showed up on those particular records. So it again questions, put into question uh, where Ndanzi was on that night. So the even more interesting, Mandy, of what's come out in court this morning is the state saying we've now reached a point where we enter a trial within a trial. Um, And this relates to accused number one and number two, who previously again told the court or had made uh, confessions, allegedly made confessions um, to knowing about the crime or being involved in some way or the other with in the commissioning and, uh, you know, the the, the crime itself. Uh, And the defense lawyers, of course, deny that there ever was any um, uh, confession by accused number one and two about the crime, even though there um, is a signed statement as far as we understand. And so the veracity of the confessions by one accused one and two, Bungani Danzi and Muris Bia, are now in question. And so the trial within a trial, Mandy, is where we'll get to test the veracity of these confessions because the state essentially wants to lead evidence uh, based on these statements. And that's where we are for uh, the day with the Senzo Mayua trial. Nokokanya, thank you so much for wrapping all of that uh, up for us. Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter in the Senzo Miwa trials, as she explained. Uh, just a quick appearance today by uh, the witness, the uh, the HR manager at uh, Savanya. And uh, now we move to a trial within a trial. Who knows how long that could take? Uh, often it does come down to legal technicalities around concessions, who said what, uh, and, and what it means for the strength of the state's case. And Advocate Mishalolo, who is now going to be involved in that matter and the Tabubesta matter as well. Well, it's certainly going to have a hands full. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Good afternoon, Mandy. Mandy, um, I just don't understand this whole issue of Dr. Makutumana, let's have a pesta. What if Dr. Makutumana was not actually prepared to meet with Tabo Pesta today after what she said about him forcing her to escape with her? 
out of the country what if she's faking this collapse and sickness i'm not saying she's not sick it's it's just a thought that i have afternoon mandy I took a dolly and pull for, for the Nandipa and Tabu Beste case. Stalingrad 2.1, here we go. It's out of here. Oh, that would make sense, right? That would be the strategy. Either you, you fake illness or you bring various interlocutory applications or you just delay, delay and uh, continuously apply for, for bail. That's very, very possible. Uh, Clement Maniatella earlier was saying to me on, on 702 that he wants to see the evidence uh, of Nandipa Magudamana collapsing just to see if she actually has um, or is she faking it. And Danasile um, sending us a, a message uh, saying... Mm, well, maybe um, she should have been watching Rosemary and Louisville. Maybe that would have been uh, an idea. She could have learnt about all of that. Uh, so do you believe Nandipa Magudamana? Are we obligated to to believe her um, that she's not feeling well? Uh, and her lawyer says she is being treated inhumanely, uh, that, uh, that, that she uh, was not dressed appropriately. They forced her. They covered her with a, a blanket to try and appear in court today. Uh, and now it seems the magistrate has to go down to the holding cells to go and postpone the matter. Uh, do you believe Dr. Nandipa, what do you think about what's happened there? 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. We are entering uh, the, uh, the, the, what do you call it, the crazy season at the moment. We're running up to uh, the elections next year and already we're starting to see political parties, silly season, that's it. Uh, we're starting to see the political parties announcing their various premier candidates. Action SA President Herman Mashaba has announced uh, Action SA's first premier candidate ahead of the elections. Uh, and uh, earlier today, he announced that uh, Quena Mangope will be the party's premier candidate for the Northwest. He is the son of the late Baputatuana leader, Lucas Mangope. Alpha Ramoshwana, EWN reporter, following that story for us. Alpha, good afternoon to you. Uh, tell us about this announcement today. Good afternoon, Mandy. Yes, indeed, Kwena Mangope has been announced as the premier candidate for the Northwest ahead of the 2024 general elections. Mangope is actually also a retired brigadier general of the South African uh, National Defense Force, and he also previously served as uh, a, a military or a soldier for the Buputatswana uh, before he served in the SAMDF. And we are seeing, like you said, Mandy, these parties starting to gear up for next year's elections. He is the first um, candidate to be announced uh, ahead of the uh, national elections. Uh, Herman Mashara has also uh, mentioned that uh, in the next few months uh, they are going to announce eight other premier candidates for all the other provinces uh, across the country. Uh, and he believes that Mangup is the perfect candidate to lead the party to victory in the Northwest. And this is despite, you know, him not having any political uh, experience whatsoever. But Herman Mashaba says his appointment was just based on merit and not on any political experience. And you remember that uh, Action SA and Herman Mashaba were the first political party, was, was the first political party, you know, to denounced the appointment of Gabelo Kwamanda as mayor, uh, you know, but it, 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 he's saying that as long as the merit uh, um, uh, agrees, the appointment is correct. But let's take a listen to what else he had to say on this matter. He's now ready to take our party to the next level of development. That is the announcement of premier candidates for all provinces, an important step to take the party to the next higher level 
in preparation of all important 2024 provincial and national elections in another seven, eight months time. Remember, in 2024, we only, 2021, we only contested six municipalities in the 2021 local government election, competing as a local complements of the IEC, Independent Electoral Committee. They made us contest as, as a logo. But we emerged as a serious player when the results were announced. South Africans saw our logo and recognized with it and put a mark across it, making us the sixth biggest political party in the country. So, Alpha, what do we know about Quinnett Mangope and his uh, political history? I suppose he does have pedigree in the in, in the sense that he was the son of the late Bopututswana leader, Lucas Mangope. But what political experience does he personally have? Well, he has no political experience at all. In fact, he was appointed as the chairperson of the Northwest, of the Action SA structure in the Northwest in 2021, following the Action SA's rise, you know. Uh, and that's literally the only political experience he has, which is so far the two years he served as provincial chairperson of the Action SA. But other than that, you know, anything closer to such a political, uh, to, to anything political is, uh, you know, his father's chieftaincy uh, or kingdom in Muputatswana. So he doesn't have any political experience whatsoever, but he, he did answer to that saying that he feels that it doesn't matter that, you know, he has no political experience. He feels that he served in the SANDF and it's enough for him to be able to lead the province. Alpha, thank you. Alpha Ramashwana, EWN reporter, speaking to us there, where Action SA has announced its uh, premier candidate for the Northwest. WhatsApp Mandy on 072 702 1702. Hello, Mandy. Yeah, so the, uh, the issues surrounding Dr. Nandipa, whether she is, whether she did collapse or not, is not really as much an issue as the fact that she needs to realize that for the rest of her life, everything she says or does is going to have a question mark hanging over it. And that is entirely her own doing. Thank you very much uh, for that WhatsApp voice note uh, on WhatsApp. Hi, Mandy. The Magunamana collapse or stunt is reminiscent of pulling a Shabir Sheikh stunt of avoiding incarceration. Thanks, Sol from Soweto. Uh, I think that unless she is acquitted, then she will be tainted by this for the rest of her life. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. In Soweto today, uh, in Naledi, a funeral underway for two young boys who died after eating chips purchased from a Spaza shop. At least five children in Soweto and the West Rand have died over the past week in incidents relating to food poisoning. Tobiso Gorba, EWN reporter, is there for us. Uh, Tobiso, good afternoon to you. Uh, tell us about what's, uh, what's been said at the funeral today. Mandy, well, uh, as, as you can imagine, it has been uh, a somber mood um, here at uh, Naledi Community Hall where the funeral is being held. It is a bit quiet now because um, everyone has gone to the cemetery where obviously they will say the final goodbyes um, to the two children, the six-year-old Leon Jele Mukhahade and four-year-old Neo Kang, who died on the 1st of October after allegedly purchasing those biscuits um, at a taxi, at a spaza shop, uh, my apologies. Um, so Mandy, um, much of the talk um, here, Mandy, uh, especially from the speakers, has been related to obviously the dangers of um, food poisoning and what is being sold to children. As you mentioned, Mandy, there is another incident 
um, that happened on the restaurant where two children also died from alleged food poisoning. So that also came up from a lot of the speakers saying that, you know, maybe the community needs to do something uh, around checking what is being sold to children at these spaza shops, especially these informal uh, spaza shops. Now, Mandy, um, we did speak to the police um, and, you know, inquest dockets have been uh, opened. The investigations are still ongoing and there hasn't been, uh, you know, the real cause of death. As we do know, that might take a bit of time because obviously the, the biscuits have to be taken for, for sampling and testing the blood of the deceased children also have to be taken for something. And that's obviously with the police that takes a bit of time. Um, we did speak to Joseph Williams, who is the grandfather of one of the deceased children, Leon Jele Mukhahabe. And he told us, uh, Mandy, that, uh, you know, he buries his, uh, his grandson with a heavy heart because he doesn't know what uh, caused for his life to be cut short. Um, so we spoke to him. Uh, and this is what he had to say uh, regarding this entire incident. Uh, I'm here to bury my grandson, which is uh, Leon, Captain. Uh, he's the grand, greatest grandson of Mohahabe. Yeah. We are deeply sad and hurt about what has occurred. But I cannot point fingers. I only blame the government because he has neglected us. How can a person tell that you are a citizen without producing your green barcode ID? So our government is neglecting us. Whatever we try to scream and shout, just gives us a cold shoulder and say, ah, they'll just be like that. So now I just blame the government himself. I cannot point fingers to say this person, investigation, it will be the one that takes place to tell us who are the culprits to this. Because pointing fingers is another thing. Tomorrow I find myself being the one who has done it. Yet pointing a finger to another person. So we'll just have to let the law do its course and investigate in peace. But we'll keep on pushing them also to give us results because we are really in conclusion myself. And I'll make efforts that I get it. The grandfather there of Leon Jele, who is being laid to rest today. Uh, the little boy who died after eating chips from a nearby Spaza shop. Terrible, terrible story there. Thank you to Tabiso Goba for bringing us that audio. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Good afternoon, Mandy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, I think the story of Dr. Makurumani, she realized now that she's not coming out of this. So her collapsing is one of her um, tricks, you know. It's not about whether she's sick or not. She's one of her tricks. Now she can see that she's in big, big, big trouble. So that's why she's trying to make herself sick so that the magistrate can feel sorry for her and the audience they can also comment feeling sorry for her. That's what it's all about. Thank you, Mandy. Oh, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, too. Thank you. Um, so... Um, Look, that's hard, right? Because she might well be sick. We don't know if if if, if Nandipa is sick. Maybe she has a panic attack, or maybe she is uh, being treated by paramedics. That's what we're told, and she's not feeling well. But I think that the problem is when you look at, for example, Rosemary and Lovo, um, or you have the the history of of Shabir Sheikh, then it makes us uh, obviously dubious about uh, whether or not there is uh, veracity here and it's legitimate or not. Uh, and now we are going to see a protracted legal battle. We always anticipated it would be um, because we now have 
for advocate Dali Mpofu coming in. And as Ranki says uh, on WhatsApp, hi, Mandy, if Dali Mpofu joins the defense, then the case will never come to an end. He would appeal and appeal and appeal, appeal any outcomes, positive or negative for them, he will appeal. So this is going to go on for a very long time. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Let's walk the talk. So yesterday on the show, we spoke about the fact that the census was going to be released yesterday afternoon and the numbers were coming out. We now know that South Africa's population reached 62 million last year. The census showed it's uh, 20% higher than when the last count was done in 2011. The average annual growth rate of 1.8% over the period. It was the highest since the first post-apartheid rule census was undertaken in 1996. Uh, Of those counted in the population, according to the data released by Stats SA, 81.4% were black, 8.2% percent of mixed race, 7.3% white, 2.7% Indian. The number of immigrants stood at around 2.4 million, and this includes just over 1 million Zimbabwean nationals. Lots of other data as well. It breaks it down into um, the, the various provinces and into age as well. And age is important because the census shows us that the number of young people uh, in the country, what they are doing, and what it tells us is that many of them, 5.2 million kids are not in school Uh, they're not in employment they're not in training and that means that they are unlikely to be employed and that means that uh, we we are obviously concerned about the fact that they need to be supported by the state and that is uh, directly related of course to the presidential employment stimulus that's the 350 rand um, grant that they get dr lauren graham is director uh, for social development uh, in africa uh, for the center for Social Development in Africa. Joining us now, Dr. Graham, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for for your time. We have this data out now from the census uh, telling us that uh, a huge number of South African young people are not in education or employment or training. Uh, What is your concern? Well, I think, Mandy, you've um, you've hit the nail on the head earlier when you you said these are young people who are struggling to access opportunities that would build their skills and their experience and make them employable in the longer term. Um, And what we see in the census data is we've had a long history of having a youth bulge, what we call a demographic youth bulge, where we've got a high number of young people in the population. Um, apparently higher than expected um, in the census. So that can be a really real positive for countries that harness the power of that youth bulge. If we're investing in good education, in transitions to employment, those are the young people who will be economically productive, being able to save, being able to support other members of the household. And if you get a reduced household size, as we're seeing, and reduced dependency ratios, then that can be an economic powerhouse for the country. What we know is that we've got high rates of young people who are unemployed, not in education and training. And so that becomes a resource in the country that is wasted. Um, Mm. I I do worry about talking about it in those terms because it's very economics-focused, but we also need to look at the real lives behind that, that these are young people who have high hopes for themselves and their communities and their households and who are really being let down um, in terms of what they are able to achieve um, for themselves and their households. And that has 
severe consequences for health, mental health and the like. Uh, you, you speak about uh, the presidential employment uh, stimulus, that's the, the grant, um, which it looks like that is going to, to end in March next year. We're hoping that there will be some kind of announcement in the mini budget, in the midterm uh, budget policy statement. W- what is your call around this uh, and, and, and what do you believe should happen? What do you anticipate will happen? So the presidential employment stimulus is made up of a a couple of policy interventions, one of which is the COVID FRD350 grant, um, the other being um, the public, uh, the education assistance program, uh, the National Pathway Management Network. So there's a couple of key policy interventions that have been made even prior to COVID, but which were scaled up quite significantly during COVID to try and address um, youth unemployment. That's been a key priority for the president. Um, and I, I would say that we need to be looking at the evidence. We Thankfully, we have a good statistical body. We've got good researchers around the country that are taking advantage of data coming out of both the census and the work that's been done with these policy interventions. And we need to be looking at what's working. We know, for instance, that that education assistance program has had positive effects for young people who are on it, for the schools that have benefited from it, and the wider economy, because that money is circulating in the economy that they're getting. Uh, We know there's some evidence showing that for instance, some work that we did that that informal traders have been able to use that COVID SRD grant of 350 to cushion shocks that they experience so that they're able to grow that money. So I think we need to be looking at the evidence about these policy interventions that have worked and be emphasizing and investing in these policy interventions to grow them. Um, and so really making evidence-informed decisions rather than popular discourse decisions um, when it comes to what we invest in going forward. Uh, so, so then look, looking at uh, evidence-based uh, decisions in terms of, of long-term solutions, um, many would argue perhaps that the extension of, of um, the stimulus program may not be financially sustainable for, for the government with enormous debt. Um, is, is this a, a long-term um, sustainable solution for our government? Look, I think I think in the in the situation that we find ourselves in, which is high levels of structural unemployment, it's something we can't afford not to invest in, because we have to have safety nets that people don't fall underneath, and because we know that that money does then circulate in the economy. The research on the education assistance program, for instance, shows that a large proportion of that stipend that young people get is spent in the retail sector on things like groceries and toiletries, basic um, items, but it does go back into the economy. And similarly, grants are spent in the economy. So I think we need to start getting away from that dependency discourse about grants and start to see them as economic stimulus. But also we need to, they can't go, it's not one or the other. In the longer term, obviously, we want to see growth in employment. We want to see growth in uh, livelihood strategies and and people being able to earn money for themselves. People, grant recipients themselves want that. Mm. But that's going to be a long-term solution. And in the meantime, we have to have these safety nets, both from a social justice point of view and from an, an economic stimulus point of view. 
Dr. Lauren Graham, thank you so much for your analysis, for unpacking all of that uh, for us. Uh, Dr. Lauren Graham is the director of the Center for Social Development in Africa, explaining them what we're really seeing according to the census. There's just a huge number of young people in South Africa that are not in formal employment, they are not in training, they are not in education. And uh, that, that number is just growing, it's skyrocketing. And that means that they are going to be dependent on the presidential employment stimulus. And the argument there is that it can't be cancelled. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. The Standing Committee on Public Accounts uh, today, SCOPA, is meeting with PRASA, that's the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa, having a look at the progress that's been made regarding the implementation plans by the City of Cape Town and the Department of Human Settlements, uh, various other agencies as well. All of this is to do with the relocation of illegal dwellers on the railway reserve between Philippi and Langa. Let's speak now to Carlo Peterson, EWN reporter. Carlo, tell us what's been discussed there today. Good afternoon, Mandy. So government officials at the Scopa meeting today agreed that progress is being made to reopen the line. Um, you know, limited rail resources um, uh, between Cape Town, Langa and Nyanga have been operating since July this year. Um, However, at that meeting, also the Housing Development Agency told officials that the entire relocation process of moving those uh, more than 2,600 households from that that line could only be completed by February 2025. Okay, so so what does that that mean then for for those residents in, in the short term? So basically, uh, they, they, some of them are being relocated um, as we speak. Um, it's just that the entire process will take um, the next two, two years to, to complete. Okay. Uh, and it looks like there's a clear plan in place then? Yes, no, definitely. A, clear, a plot of land has been identified in Stock Road in the Philippi area. And um, reconstruction of that land has already begun. Um, that entire process uh, will cost about 150 million rand. Carlo, thank you very much. Uh, Carlo Peterson, EWN reporter, speaking to us there about that meeting taking place uh, today with uh, Scopa and Prasa, uh, various other entities as well. All of that looking at the rail reserve between Philippi and Langa. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Hi, morning, Mandy. Nandipa is collapsing because she's thinking about meeting her kidnapper, Double Pesta. That thought of meeting Double Pesta makes her collapse. You're going to hear next time when she comes there with your lawyers. <laughs> yeah, Tamin Prospect. That's probably the argument, is that she's going to argue that he, he kidnapped her, as we heard in the bail application, and that's why she didn't want to see him uh, face-to-face. So I can give you an update on that matter now. And it looks like uh, what's going to happen is Magistrate DeLange is going down to the holding cells to postpone the matter and transfer it to the High Court for pretrial. Um, and in fact, the prosecutor, the senior prosecutor there, Amanda Bester, says that in her 37 years of practice, she has never seen that happen, where the magistrate is actually going to go down to the holding cells in the Park Road um, uh, police station and is going to postpone that matter. So it seems as though Nandipa Mugurumana, uh, it worked to an extent. She didn't have to appear in the dock. It's going to get postponed, but she can't run from the law. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m.
So for years, we have heard legal practitioners and um, you know, members of the judiciary and journalists complaining about the state of the Gauteng High Court in Johannesburg. Uh, as long as I've been a reporter, it's been a massive problem. There are concerns around the safety of the actual building. And a really interesting story today in News 24 about uh, the fact that this is, is now becoming a serious hazard to the, to the extent that the Gauteng Deputy Judge President, Roland Sutherland, has spoken out on this matter. And uh, he has said that the largely unaddressed fire safety risks at the Joburg High Court, which resulted in emergency services finding that it would actually be unsafe to send firefighters into the building, are now a life or death situation. And this is a court of law where people need to go on every single day. So Karen Morn, EWN, not EWN, sorry, News 24 reporter uh, who wrote this story, uh, joining us now to speak about this. Karen, good afternoon to you. Thank you for for your time. You know, for years, you and I have been in in this courtroom um, and we know how bad it is, but it's really reached a point now where if you have a deputy judge president actually speaking out about this, you you have to know it's really serious. Well, I mean, I think what's informed a lot of this is that he got a report from the city of Joburg Emergency Services, a fire inspection report that literally said, you know, were there to be a fire, we can't guarantee that people will be safely evacuated. And it is an 11-page document sets out the basis by which that is said. But it's scary going in there and checking fire doors and finding that they're locked. Um, You know, a lot of the judges couldn't be able to get out of emergency doors because they have special key cards that only the secretaries have. And, you know, when I went into the 10th floor, which is obviously that archive floor, which is just full to the brink of paper, you know, paper documents with windows open, light shining through the windows, you can literally see the disaster that's about to potentially could happen there. And then when you push the fire doors, they're all locked. And I think that, you know, it is an extraordinary thing for a deputy judge president to come out the way that he has and said, you know, literally I'm at my wit's end and I I can't just sit back and and keep quiet about this. Obviously, there's been a bit of a backlash from the president of of the court who, who felt that that was untoward. But it is very clear that in doing that, he just feels that he has a deep moral responsibility to protect the people in that court. And I think you and I, having been in that environment, um, now knowing that they are clear, it's a massive risk for people to be there. Um, I think that we, we, everyone would be hoping that something really productive is going to happen now. So who's ultimately responsible for, for that, that building? And, and what are they saying about what's being done about it? Well, I think one of the things that Sutherland was at pains to say was that, you know, essentially court buildings are an inter- intersection of three interests. And it's the Office of the Chief Justice. It's public works who own the building. And then it's the Justice Department. And when I did, you know, to their credit, when I did get hold of Public Works and, and send that litany of photos, um, the minister, uh, Snooki Zagalala, did respond and said, you know, he expressed outrage at the conditions. Um, as I understand, since we made the queries, there has been a quote-unquote task team sent there. Um, they have dealt with some of the issues. But I think the biggest issue is that 10th floor with this, massive archive of, of paper. Um, and then obviously the, the issues with the, the, the escape routes that, you know, there was a finding a year ago, over a year ago, um, by the, the city of Joburg that people would not be able to get out of this building. Um, and, and a lot of those things haven't been addressed. The public works is, is promising that they're in the process of being addressed or will be addressed.
Sure. And as things stand at the moment, uh, obviously, um, um, for many of those judges and, and the, the lawyers and members of the public that are going into the building, uh, they have no choice but, but to do so. Unless they are, you know, fake illness and um, the magistrate goes to see them in the holding cells like <laughs> some other accused. Is that a subtweet, um, Lina? <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> Karen Moore, as always, thank you very much. Uh, Karen Moore, News 24 journalist, uh, who uh, one of the authors of this uh, story today, uh, highlighting the concerns around the safety of that building. It's been a problem for such a long time. And uh, now we have a deputy judge president speaking out, which is extraordinary, uh, taking that step because he says that he feels uh, a moral obligation to do so. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. The World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, has uh, now spared South Africa from uh, the consequences of not complying with its updated anti-doping code for now. So yesterday we had that press conference from the Sports, Arts and Culture Minister, Zizi Kodwa, who says that uh, South Africa's commitment to anti-doping is unquestionable. Uh, and what it means in the short term is that the Springboks will be able to sing the national anthem and fly the flag. The Proteus tomorrow at uh, the World Cup will be able to do so as well that matter now being referred to the court of arbitration for sport in switzerland for consideration until a ruling is delivered lita mpondwana is the sports arts and culture spokesperson joining us to speak about this uh, lisa good afternoon to you thank you for for your time uh, minister zizi kodwa yesterday speaking about the fact that our, our commitment to anti-doping was unquestionable yet this still went all the way down to the line uh, in in classic south african style why why did that happen good morning afternoon mandy it's good to be on your show again yes it was unfortunate that things got to where they were but the minister of sport arts and culture mrs goddard has emphasized that um there will be an investigation underway just to find out specifically how things were got to where they were um because at the moment as things stand um um, things are moving. The South African um, Institute for Drug Free Sport Amendment Bill was approved by Cabinet last week, and now to go before Parliament and follow those processes. So those deliberations are also happening um, with WADA, just to reassure them that um, this is happening. But uh, the question as to how things got that far, um, the minister has stated that there will be an investigation just to see how things got to, um, just how things got here, and just how how not in future to avoid such a situation from happening again. So, Lita, as things stand at the moment, the matter is referred to the Court of Arbitration, sport in Switzerland, until a ruling is delivered. So, in the short term, it means that our our teams will be able to fly the flag and and sing the anthem, right? Yes. So, Mandia, I should say, actually, one of the uh, the consequences of an anthem not being sung was not one of the consequences of Africa being non-compliant. So that one falls away. Um, we just don't know where it comes from. But Okay, so it was just a flag flying of the flag yeah. issue or saying that it was a national team, right? Yes, yes. Um, the, the sanctions um, the, the sanctions to South Africa were found to be non-compliant were to relate to South Africa not flying um, flags in, in international, regional and national competitions and also South Africa not hosting um, international, um, regional and, 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 and national um, um, events um, which are hosted by major event organizations. But as things stand now, um, since um, WADA has confirmed um, receiving the file of notice um, from SAIDS, um, the flags um, will still be flying high um, on Saturday with the box and also the Cricket World Cup and other international and national sports events that are taking place until such a time as CAS makes its ruling. But... Um, 
there's been um, quite an unfortunate hysteria over the past week because this has been um, a big a concerning story. But what I can assure you is that there have been deliberations happening between states, government um, and WADA um, just on how South Africa has this timeline of, of, of meeting um, this legislation mm. and getting it passed through because that right. was really the only outstanding matter where South Africa just needed to have its amendment bill aligned with the new Amwada Code. Lita, thank you very much. Uh, Lita Mpondwana is the Sports Arts and Culture spokesperson speaking to us there about uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, and the fact that it's now confirmed receiving that formal notification from the SA Institute for Drug-Free Sport disputing the allegations of non-compliance. The Midday Report. No, never a dull moment in this in this country. If you're not speaking about Nandipa Mugudamana collapsing um, or, or what's going on there. So the Gauteng Department of Education has just put out a statement in the last couple of minutes saying uh, it can confirm that there is no existing record of a national senior certificate, matric certificate, for Matthew Bongani Lani, who's been masquerading on social media as a medical practitioner. So not only is Dr. Matthew Lani not a medical doctor, he also does not have a matric he does not have a national senior certificate. South Africa is truly alive with possibilities. You can put a stethoscope around your neck and you can go on social media and you can pretend to be anything you want to be. Dream big, people.